business book launch for the year. Um, but the author tonight promised me last week that he would be naked during this tonight. <laughs> I got it on my WhatsApp. Um, so I want to thank leadership for being here tonight. Arthur Young, Montel, Jane, thank you for working with me this year. Kim Hunter, tirelessly recording these events and all the events that we've had this year. 170 events I've done this year. Myself and Kirsten Rolston. That's 20 a month. That's quite hectic. <laughs> so please, those that are new here tonight, I welcome you on behalf and Kirsten uh, to Scoob's Theatre of Books, driven now from Forward Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for being here tonight as well. Uh, Letitia, for always taking beautiful photographs. I see none's been taken tonight, Dora. Um, to our events, Arthur, always, Nantor, Young, for always being here. Thank you for being a mentor, Molly. Thank you for being a mentor to me too. I really appreciate all you've done to grow me this year. Um, both of you, Nantor, Molly, Kim, and of course, uh, the divine Jacques Villemin. <laughs> the divine, is he divine? I think he's just divine. I want to devour him this, this evening. I, when he walked in, I just wanted to devour him. Funny story, and I'll quickly tell you, because you guys don't know, I see some new faces tonight. We actually meet in a singles evening. In the store, actually. An idea that felt flat. Uh, Kirsten and I start ideas, if they work, they work, if they don't, they don't. We just move on to the next idea, and I think this is what Mike's, uh, our author's about tonight. Uh, move on to the next idea, if it doesn't really move on to the next idea, and I love that, about that tonight. And we met at a singles idea, and he mingled, I think there was an overwhelming majority of women here, and Mr. Hanson was standing at the back, and he just came up to me and he said, I have this idea. And I said, oh, I love it. I'll hear, what is it? I want to run a business book up. Yes, I've got lots of authors for you. 250 we've done in the last 18 months. If you want content, dude, I have got authors for you. So let's get this together. And this is the culmination of it. This is our 11th month this year. I think we've only missed 10. Like, when we did 10 last month? I'm sure it's 11. It's our 11th business book. Club. Yeah, because we started singles in February. Uh, so we had one for singles. It's been a great foreplay from the February Singles Club to this evening, uh, where we have this orgasmic new author tonight that Sharks managed to uh, find who likes to play naked. I mean, what can I say about this? Jackie, thank you for bringing love, light, joy into Scoops. Uh, Kirsten and I really appreciate you working tirelessly with us. Musa and the Signature Library, you know we've built a shark and between myself and Jacques have stopped the Signature Library and are continuing to stop the Signature Library um, with books. 
uh, and to many things leadership. I believe we had a tribal meeting last night, which I was not invited to. Um, <laughs> just saying. Um, Mike, thank you for being here tonight. We're a crazy bunch of people. And I know that you're a crazy author, so I'm so happy to have you here tonight. We thank you for being here. Jockey, thank you. Let's do it next year, my friendly. Over to Doc Fetterman. Everybody enjoy your evening. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Business Book Club. This is really one of our the highlights of the month, and today we've got we've got another great author. But I want to take you back to to where the Business Book Club started. Um, I'm the founder of a business called Centered, and we're a business coaching firm. And in in this business, what we do is we help clients. Uh, we help them build successful businesses. But where does that, all of that start? That starts with being different. Because ultimately our businesses are a reflection of who we are as our lives. And when we want to change our business, we've got to change ourselves. Which is sometimes a hard reality. But when we want to change ourselves, we've got to go and say, how do we do that? And we do that first of all with knowledge. So the biggest problem that we have as humans is we make assumptions about life and, and we build our lives full of assumptions and the problem with assumptions are is exactly that they're assumptions because our, our blind spot is that we don't know what we don't know and, and that's a harsh reality so the business book club really came from that reality uh, realizing that with clients and saying but, but you know how can we make things different because we share we share knowledge, and through knowledge, people have the ability and the opportunity to change. And personally, I've always wanted to, to do something that's not just for me. Um, but I don't like to give money to Cargot. I, I don't like to give money to, to beggars because I, I, you know, it's a personal feeling, and I just, you know, it's feeding the dragon. It's feeding the same thing over and over. But what I am keen to do is, is to help people uh, be better than themselves. So I don't want to. I don't want to give people fish. I want to teach them how to fish, because that to me builds sustainability. That is what my business is about, and that is what the business book club is about. So I want to thank each and every one of you who donated a book today, because that book is going into circulation. That book is becoming part of teaching people how to fish, because that book contains knowledge. And yes, some people write funny books like uh, Mr. Mike, but we're going to talk about that. But everybody has got ideas that they put onto pages. And when I read a book, I read somebody else's thoughts and not my own. Because when I think my own thoughts, science has shown that I, that I regurgitate 80% of that the next day in any event. So when we sit in our cars and in traffic, we think thoughts that we thought yesterday. So how inspiring is that? But when I get into somebody else's head and I can understand, but how does Joe think? How does John think? How does Nantu think? I have the opportunity to gain new knowledge. And when I gain new knowledge, I can choose to change my behavior. Now, some people don't have that choice. We are fortunate, most of us here. We've had education. We've had access to books. 
we've had access to knowledge. We live in a country where not everybody has that privilege. As a matter of fact, the majority don't have that privilege. And the, the book club is about sharing that knowledge and getting it to people to give them the choice to change their behavior. Because we can't change anybody's behavior on their behalf, but we can help them with that choice. When I started the business book club, I realized that I could not do this on my own. No person can do anything of significance on their own. And I've got beautiful Deborah that has helped and has, has been such a, such a flame in this. But I've also had the privilege with working with three other individuals. And I just like them to, to stand as I call their names and just ask them to, to say one or two things about what they believe the Business Book Club is about and, what they, and why they feel passionate. Because whatever we do here, we don't do this, there's no remuneration. We do this because of our true belief in something bigger than ourselves. So the first person I'd like to, to mention something is Jan. Jan is part of our leadership team and just share with us one or two words of what the Business Book Club means to you. Okay, thank you very much everybody. And uh, I think one of the reasons I'm on the Jack's leadership team is because we just kept turning up. We were some of the, <laughs> we were some of the regulars here and uh, you know, we love the book club. Uh, I've been an avid book reader since I was very young and it actually books changed my life because I was bullied as a little kid and eventually somebody handed me a book at the age of 17 when I decided that enough was enough and that's when books started changing my life and I've read thousands of them. Uh, a lot of uh, positive books and, and, and you know story books but uh, inspiring books and I, I, I think that it's not not so much about giving back because we haven't taken anything from these people but we want to help them to come up because if we're going to be showing a good example and, and helping people up to us. We need to keep improving, but we need to help others. There are so many people who have, as Jack says, no access to what we just take for granted. Books, somebody reading to them, but making a difference in communities. And for me also, because I am not originally, as you can tell by the accent, from South Africa, also that for me to learn more about people, I need to be amongst the people. I can't go to a, to a website, I can't go to Google and I can't sit in front of a TV, which I don't do anyway. I don't own one. But I need to be amongst the people. If we want to be making a difference, then we should do it not just from the, the comfort of a computer of a, or, or our own homes, but actually be there. And I think to actually be involved with a, with a leader like Jack, who's, who set this whole thing up, from the beginning, and I love the idea from the beginning, and that's why we were here so often, uh, every chance we had on the first Tuesday of the month, but also listening and getting inspired by these people who tell, who not only talk about business, but some of them came from the communities, from from Soweto, and there have been Gigi uh, Alcock, who uh, had an inspiring story as a white Zulu, and to, for us to learn more as well, but as we learn, we need to be able to share, but we can't share physically everywhere, so to be able to, to support this by getting these books to the right people in the right hands regularly so they can actually learn and live a life that we are still trying to get to grips with I think is amazing and to make a difference we cannot do this on our own and that's why every month we need to keep coming back and we keep to get more people involved as Jack says uh, the, the aim is to do this all over the place starting libraries all over the place so people have access to these books I mean, I can talk a lot about this because I feel passionate about making a difference and it's, 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 people are my passion. So I think it's just the right fit for me 
to be part of an organization where we can actually give it, make a difference and only, the only way we can make a difference, not just standing here talking about it, but actually doing it. And that's why we want to get each and every one of you involved one way or another. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. And thank you, thank you for your insights into the Business Book Club. The other person I would like just to quickly uh, recognize as well is, is Arthi. Um, she's been an absolute inspiration in the Business Book Club and her ideas and strategy regarding how we can take this, this forward into the communities. And the interesting thing about Arthi is she, she understands the African languages. She understands the culture because the one, the, one, the one thing that we do have as an issue with the Business Book Club is it's one thing to take these books into the libraries, ah, to take these, these, these books into libraries in the townships. That's the easy part. The other part is to get people to read them. And that is a connection that we are working hard at and strategizing to understand how we can do that. And Arthur is playing a vital and key role in helping with this strategy. So I'd like to uh, ask Arthur to go on stage and share her, her thoughts on the Business Book Club and to thank her for, for her input. Thank you so much for this. I think one of the amazing things about the Business Book Club is it allows you to touch the lives of people we have not seen. For us to come here and have the privilege of being in Scoops, which is really amazing. It's a classy, beautiful environment. We're in an environment where it is something that we're used to. The thing is though, that what you don't realize is that every single book that you bring here, the simplicity of it and what we found is that and we've summed this up very, very, very succinctly in saying, embrace significance, give a book, change lives. That is what Business Book Club stands for. So when you walk in here and you give a book, you're embracing significance. So what you're doing in your, in your way is touching the lives of so many more people in, in, who go to, to Signature Library. One of the things that we found is that the greater community is actually being impacted by your books. So it's not just young people that are looking at the books and, and borrowing the books. There are young entrepreneurs, there are business people, there are even university students. We found out that university students are coming to this library because it is well stocked with so much knowledge and one of the visions that Jacques has is shared knowledge. So how do we share? It's by giving a book. It doesn't have to be too impressive, but the fact is, in your thoughtfulness, you are touching lives, and I think that is the stunning part about the book club, and I think it's one of the things that we focus on, is how can we change the lives of our South Africans with the simplicity of your gift. Thank you. Thank you, And then the last person that I would like to call up to, do, to stage to thank you for her contribution in the Business Book Club, to thank you for her inspiration um, and sharing her thoughts and ideas is Nontu. Nontu, please come up stage. for her contribution. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Hi, everybody. Yay, there's somebody here. Well, I think for me, the most touching and the most important part as an author, as a speaker, is being able to understand who you are and most importantly, share it with the world. We are all created to give ourselves to make a difference. And I believe that Jacques' vision is a platform for us to be able to open our hearts and realize that life is not about you. Life is more meaningful when you share it with others. And the more you share what you know, what you have, what you've achieved, what you inspire to become, 
the more life changes around you. The environment that we live in every day is influenced by how we contribute to it every day, by the way we think, the way we talk, the way we carry ourselves, and the way we contribute meaningfully to it. So the vision that I'm, it's so humbling for me to work with such amazing minds, and most importantly, with such an incredible community as yourselves, who is here today. You could be doing anything, but you're here right now, and you're giving a book to total strangers. And as an African young girl who comes from a very painful background, it's, it's inspiring to be given an opportunity post-94 to say we can write a positive story of what South Africa can be. Collaboration of non-color, non-race, non-sex, just beautiful hearts and people making a change. So thank you for who you are and your contribution to the Business Book Club. Thank you. Thank you to you, Nancy. So the reason why I did that is just to, is to help everybody understand that the Business Book Club is not just a one-man show. It's not just a one-man's dream. This is something much bigger. And we'll keep you informed about our, our plans and how things are going to go. But enough about that. It's now time for our author. Mike, would you like to join me up, up here on the, in the hot seat? Thank you, Welcome. Welcome, Mike. Mike, so let's just get our, our strings on the right side of the chair. So, Mike, you obviously have got a very provocative title over here. <laughs> But, but before we go into the Bestic story, um, share, share with our audience today the story of, of Mike, because you've got a, you started in here about a few things that are not, not the norm. And I think you've broken every freaking rule <laughs> there is to break. Would you like to share with us a bit about where you come from, where did you grow up, and how come you... You, you know, what was presented to you that you go and you have this mindset of, you know, it can be done in a totally different way. Um, hi everybody, thank you for coming out today and, and for braving the traffic and the, the water and the potholes. Um, it's quite crazy how there's so much rain in Joburg and everything's dry in Cape Town. So it's basically end of the world stuff. Um, I was born to a really interesting family in the sense that my mom and dad went out flying right out of the gates. Uh, they had two daughters when they were 20 and 21 years old. And then they took a 15 year break and then I came into the world. So I was like my dad's last shot at having a son. And boom, here I came into the world, guns blazing. And uh, I was really disabled from the start because my sisters felt it was hilarious being in matric and kind of grade 10 respectively. And they suddenly had this amazing play toy that they could teach Madonna songs. I had to learn Lies La Bonita when I was two years old as opposed to nursery rhymes. So Yara was spitting pop songs before I could even like, comprehend what was actually happening in the real world. And one of the greatest privileges that I've had is that I was born into a, into a family where the patriarch was, a, was an airline pilot. And for me, I was a... I was a an airline brat from the moment I popped out of the womb. Flying my first overseas trip when I was nine months old, went to New Zealand to visit my sister when she was on exchange. And that for me, I think, has been the greatest privilege of my life, is being able to travel the world, meet new people from different cultures and different backgrounds. And it's given me a real like appreciation of life because the thing about South Africa, because of our past and because of where we've come from, we all live in very segmented, 
high-walled sort of society where we actually are afraid of each other and we're afraid of different cultures, different backgrounds, different races. And for me, traveling breaks down those boundaries because you are the anomaly, you are the person that is weird and you're different and you have to make a real effort to go outside of your comfort zone to meet people. And I think like that is one of the, the defining moments. And Shane, my dad, he was obsessed with this goal of like, geez, I finally made a son, he's definitely going to be an airline pilot, we're going to talk airplanes together and have a vibe. And I was like, no, I want to be an actor. So that was like originally the, the direction that I wanted to go in because I loved uh, humanities, loved English, loved performing, loved doing, uh, debating. And for me, that was the thing that um, I went to school at CARES. So I was in the art class and we were naturally like the outsiders from the start. And it was one of those things, I think, you know, bullying is rife nowadays, past, especially when you're in an all boys school, like there's, you know, being the, the art kids, you're always going to be like a little bit alternative. And for me, it was always interesting being able to speak well with your mouth, to be able to defend yourself on any occasion. And I think like for me, words and spoken and written word and uh, comprehending what's going on in your brain in order to convert those thoughts into words aggressively and smartly, that was the quickest way to shoot people down in an environment that was very like job culture. Yeah. I can totally relate to that. You know, if you don't play first team rugby, um, you know, what are you doing in the school? Uh, coming from a, from a similar type of school. And you know, my sister, and I, and I won't mention names, um, just that she takes photographs. Um, I, think, I think one of the complaints that she also had is, you know, she had to listen to my Nirvana and there are a few other heavy metal because I mean, yeah, she didn't get the opportunity to listen to Humpty Dumpty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were, yeah, they, we, we, had a, we had a great audience or, or, or captured audience. But Mike, you're touching there on, on the fact that your, your father wanted you to, to study and, or, or to be a pilot. You wanted to do arts, but you compromised with him somehow. Yeah, so I said to him, listen, I, I want to go to um, acting school, and he's like, no, and there's a, a part about this in the book about, you know, you can't, why do you want to be an actor? Like, you're never going to have money to have a bond, or you, there's no medical aid, like, what do you want to do with yourself? And I said, listen, I'm going to go to, to varsity. I spoke to a guidance teacher at the time, and she said her son was very similar. Like, he wanted to do advertising, so he, his compromise was to go and do a a degree in marketing and then from there he did a post-grad diploma at Red and Yellow or AAA or one of the ad schools and then he focused his interest on advertising after that. So I went to an open day at Rao, the store Rao at the time and I found this degree called BA Marketing Communication and the whole of society abuses you when you want to do a BA. Hey bro, what's the difference between a pizza and a, and a BA? Well, a pizza can feed a family of four. You know, so you get all these kinds of... So, so like society wants you to be an accountant, parents default to BCom because our oh, BCom is safe and every accountant out there is always going to be employed and that's the safe, that's like white South Africa's default. Go study a BCom. And then by studying this BA marketing, I had a mixture of business subjects and art subjects. Like I had politics in first year and I had um, audiovisual where we wrote scripts and we shot like homemade videos and, and those kinds of things. And then when I finished that degree, I said to my folks, listen, I've done the degree, I've got the paperwork, I'm actually just, I'm going to the States to be an actor. And I, I didn't want to have any regrets of, 
of not having done it. So my aunt and uncle lived in the States. Both of them were entrepreneurs pretty much their entire lives. My aunt has a business where she sells African railroad sleeper furniture and curios throughout the States. In the prime of her business, she had eight stores across America. And my uncle, he sold airplanes. Uh, he was dyslexic from a kid. And no one had dys there was no such thing as dyslexia when he was, yeah, he was just dumb. And uh, he started selling airplanes in the height of his entrepreneurship journey. So I was constantly uh, engaged with people who were bucking the trends, who were anti-establishment, anti-norm, and developing their own journeys off the back of that. And I worked a lot in my varsity holidays for my aunt, sanding tables, driving trucks through the snow in the US, going to trade shows, selling furniture, always having to have some form of sales pitch and having an accent in the US definitely helps to sell furniture to rich older woman. <laughs> Just like selling books to rich older women. Definitely was a bad idea. So yeah, a lot of these things along the journey, I mean it's easy to look back in retrospect and in hindsight and say everything was part of this journey, but uh, I've always just had like these gut instincts in terms of following something and always saying no to people that try to convince me otherwise. And I think it's also a situation where your gut helps a lot of the time steer you in a direction and you've just, you've just got to believe in it and go with it. And um, from doing acting school and doing some stand-up comedy, um, I did some performances in the US as this South African dude with an accent. And the, the main lesson from improv in acting is there's no no, there's just yes. So you have to embrace every kind of situation that comes your way. And uh, a lot of the lessons from stand-up, going talking to an audience of people from different backgrounds, shapes, and, and colors, and that's where I compare marketing and stand-up comedy as, as being cousins, because on a daily basis, I have to sell products and services to an audience of people that are very diverse backgrounds, shapes, sizes, and colors. So there, there are all these different touch points where um, eventually I wanted to stay in the States and try and get sponsored to, to carry on there, but um, I had to come home. And then I wrote a one-man show, and for 2006 and part of 2007, I wrote a show, I performed it at Vitz, a friend of mine directed it, we built the props and the sets together, and then we took the show with the profits down to Grahamstown to actually perform it at the Fringe Festival. And um, from there I got to be really exposed to the highs and lows of performance and putting yourself out there for a living, and it's, it's not just a fairy tale. And Mike, I definitely want to, want, to, want, to, want to talk a bit about you know, how that, the whole ability of telling stories and how that um, stood you in good stead in your, in your career. But after, after your, your shows, your one-man show, and you, and you made your millions through that, <laughs> um, you then went to the UK and you gained some valuable experience there working for, for different companies. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so I didn't make millions um, performing, but I managed to learn a lot about personal branding, creating marketing for a show, for a concept, budgeting, putting together a package, and then convincing strangers to come to a hall to actually watch you stand up on stage for 60 minutes. Um, and then from there, a friend of mine who was a few years older, she had started a PR agency. And she said to me, dude, listen, this acting thing's great, but you'd be really good at PR. And I'm like, well, what's PR? That sounds pretty lame. So she said, <laughs> I was like, I was like, the only thing I know about PR is like girls in short skirts handing out canapes to old white rich dudes at events. And she said, no, no, that's not, that's not the real PR. Like real PR is strategic and there's like thought process and there's understanding of target markets. 
and they just won the Virgin Money account in 2007. So Richard Branson came out and he went fully sliding off the Absa Capital Towers and boom, kicking through signs about South Africans are being ripped off to the tune of 385 million rand on card fees alone. Um, and then I worked for them for two years and really understood the importance of getting to the headspace of a target market. And that's the issue with South Africa, is that we have these old school understandings of demographics and we try to box people into things all the time. And like in advertising and communication, we do, we try and everything's about boxing people. And uh, this was more around the psychographics and the psychology of a customer and an audience. And working for them for two years was invaluable because I got, they were a small startup, so I got exposed to MDs and CEOs and I was going to meetings, taking notes and meeting people that I would never have met had I just been a, a number in a larger agency. And I ended up winning a fancy dress competition at Kingsmead, dressed up in a mankini and I went as Borat as a fanatical fan. Uh, as one does. As one does. And so it was, uh, it was, it was it was Sean Pollock or Mackay and Teeny's last test in Durban, and then I won the Fanatical Fan competition and won two tickets to go to the UK. So my best mates and I, we left in the following April to go to the UK. We went to watch the Proteas, and then we ended up getting jobs, slotted into the UK. We had to do spit bras and all kinds of weird odd catering jobs before I could actually get a real job in the UK. And while I was working in the UK, the agency I worked with basically PR startups. So like everything that eventually came after this was super valuable because I got to experiment off other people's budgets, other people's um, setups. I got to see and learn from business owners in small environments. And I had to come up with stunts to promote brands that no one had ever heard of. So the one summer we launched this action sports channel called Empora, and they effectively showcased content that we'd be familiar with Red Bull. So it was all extreme sports and downhill skating and um, just any weird and wonderful sport that had some kind of extreme death-defying stunt associated with it. That is what we were promoting. So I had these beautiful girls in bikinis. They were in Pora branded. I took them to the streets of London in rush hour traffic. They were in, shot in photo booths on the tube. I busted into radio stations and took them on air. And uh, there's always been some form of understanding of like, the importance of a stunt. And I think if you look back to like the Richard Branson thing and a lot of clients we worked with, a lot of them were challenger brands. And to be a challenger brand, you don't necessarily have the biggest budgets and you don't necessarily have the biggest name, but you've got the biggest balls and you've got to do something, you've got to do something different to stand out. Um, and then working in London for two years, I was the guy that was interested in social media. I was writing a blog about our adventures. I was obsessed about analytics. I was one of the only people in the agency that was on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I was looking at ways in which we could incorporate social media into uh, journalism engagements. Because in, like 10 years ago, the only influential people in the world were journalists because they could talk from one to me. And the most effective comms is one to one because I can convince you to follow my argument if I'm convincing enough. Um, and then in those days, journalists were the gateway drug to making stuff be amplified. And then social media came along and then it was like, well, we could actually cut out the middleman of journalists and we go straight to influencers online. And we got to the stage in the UK where I was like, done. I've had enough time working for people. I'm 26, my balls are massive and I need to start my own thing. And uh, as all good, arrogant young entrepreneurs or startup founders decide this is the time is now even though there isn't ever really a right time 
and then came back to Joburg and launched Retroviral, which is a hybrid social media agency with PR elements and stunts. And today, still, we, we, we amplify and make stuff go viral. Like, that's our thing. I mean, like two weeks ago, we had eight people live on a billboard on Santon Drive and William Nickel, and they competed against each other for challenges of Survivor styles. And then the winner, he gets a slot in Survivor. So, like, there's this no limit in terms of idea and execution when your client also has balls <laughs> as massive as your own, or you think you think they are. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of arrogance and extreme confidence and... Um, and that's effectively where this book title came from. It's like there are a lot of dicks in business. And this is gender neutral. I mean, girls can also be big dicks, you know? And I talk at a lot of marketing conferences, and my whole thing is like, there's so many big dicks in business. I never want to be the biggest dick, because big is all about ego, building this massive empire. Don't be the biggest, be the motherfucking best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amen, brothers and sisters. Can we say fuck here? Is that allowed? <laughs> Well, amen. So, so that's, that's effectively the thing that led to this path. Um, and I talk about how I came back to South Africa from London. And 2010 was fucked up, man. Like, it was hectic. It was intense. Um, there's one, one F word we can't say at Retroviral that's off, off bounds, by the way. And that's flash mob. Okay? And say all the other Fs, just don't say flash mob. That's, that's a, a swear word in our agency. But I came back to South Africa kicked off retroviral. 2010 was a vibe, was like Zaminamina, eh eh, waka waka, eh eh, Zaminamina, Zambeka, it's time for Africa, Zaminam, you know, it was like, cool vibe, like, was, wasn't that the greatest year of all of our lives? Like, people were getting murdered and destroyed, like, every 27 seconds, people were dying and crying, but no, like, we had lived in this bubble where we lived in Utopia, South Africa, like, everyone was hugging, just like the 95 Madiba effect again. And we thought, like, we thought just everything's going to be fine. Little did we know, Jay-Z term later. Anyway, so in 2010, back in South Africa, and in, it was the September, I went to Joburg Day with a girlfriend of mine, we met, uh, went to this concert, came out to try and find a car. Have you ever tried to find your car at River Sands after a concert in the dark? Fumbled around for two hours trying to find a car, eventually got home. So exhausted, just done with the day, tired of it. I was dressed up like Jack Parra, had a wife beater on, had shorty shorts, had this long cap that I made as jolly. And um, walked into my house, opened the door, let uh, my girlfriend inside the house. Next one, turned around to lock the door, these four, four, four armed dudes that just rushed me, um, knocked me out, like, started fucking me up a bit, uh, took my shoelaces off, tied me up with my shoelaces, hands through my pockets, pulling out cell phone, ransacked the house, they tied me up with this girl, um, very hectic, like one stage I thought they were going to try and rape her, like, you know, I was like, please don't rape her, please don't rape her, like, very, very intense, like, thousands of emotions, 90 minutes, the proper raw South Africa bullshit that all of us have someone, we know someone through a story of someone, and um, you have all these, like, also these white people panics, like, they're going to get the iron, they're going to burn my face with the iron, like, that's the one thing we panic, panic about, I mean, like, we can laugh about it now, but that's the thing, like, Oh my god, imagine getting burnt off the iron. Fuck. Sorry. It, it wasn't meant to take such a heavy turn. But it's a very important part of the story because for the next few months I was like super paranoid. I was like a little bit edgy. I went and did the whole trauma counseling thing in like the best practice. And trauma counseling is really good when you've been through something like that because effectively what the trauma counselor does, all they're doing is they're taking the stuff from your subconscious 
They're trying to get you to process it, to bring it to your conscious, because then you can deal with stuff. And like guys that don't want to go for counseling and they don't want to go through the stuff, that's where the problems come, because you don't ever bring the, the subconscious issues to your head. So she'll say, what did you smell? What did you taste? What did you feel? And all you're doing is you're repeating the same story like six or seven times until it really is in a manageable, packageable kind of way that you can deal with it. And I got loads of messages after that. Like my sister, one of them lives in the UK now. Why did you go home? It's so dangerous. Come back to England. You can come here. Why did you move to Australia? Like all the, you know, it's all those kinds of things. And I was like, I'm not going to let four evil dudes completely ruin my view of the country. Like we know that it's fucked up and we have our issues here, but it's really important that. You know, I came back for a purpose to start something and because I think that there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of amazing stuff here. And for me, like it was, it was, you know, up and down, cried a lot, but ultimately, like getting through that experience, like it made me see that there's a lot of opportunities that we can really deal with. And it is a lot of the, the problem around us being scared of each other and not making an effort to actually know our neighbor and, peep over our high-rise walls with the electric fence, with the razor wire, with the other thing, with the guard dog on top of it. And, uh, you know, from there, I would go to bars and things, and people would be like, oh, dude, read your story. Like, that's insane. Where did you read the story? Oh, I read it on your blog. And, like, all these different things just kind of showed how important the internet actually is for dissemination of information and messaging. And random people, and like I say in the book, there's like this witching hour at South African bars and clubs where people are coming to you, oh, my brother, I love you, my brother. Like, that's the time of the night when, you know, everyone's had enough. When random dudes are coming up to you and they're straight and they're like, I love you, my brother. Then you know it's time to go home. <laughs> Regardless if you're a dude or a girl. Like, that's the, the time to call it. And, um... So from that being the situation, then I also, in this whole like hold up, I had my MacBook stolen. It was basically my MacBook and my iPhone was my business now that I've just started. And then my iPhone got replaced a few days later. I won a Twitter competition with AfriHost. I mean, I had like a thousand followers at the time on Twitter and it was like a massive deal. I'm just some random dude, one iPhone, cool. Then um, back at work, trying to make a living and try and sell my wares. And then my fucking car got stolen. Like two weeks later, my car got stolen outside of the company that I was working. I was hot desking at this PR agency that I used to work with. And that was amazing. Like they'd open up their arms saying, dude, we're gonna support you starting your business, come hot desk from us. We won't charge you rent for the first few months. Get on your feet. And then I'm like and then Nikki walks in and she's like, dude, where's your car? And I'm like, dude, that's not funny. And she's like, dude, seriously, where's your car? I felt like I was in that movie. Dude, where's my car? And my fucking car was stolen, you know? And I was like, ah, fuck you, universe. And um, then a few weeks later, Minnie contacted me, because like now I'm like a mini influencer because I've got a thousand followers on Twitter. And that's the Twitter's like the talk of the town in 2010. Jesus, a lot of fucking alliteration. Anyway. So then, Mini sponsors me a car, so I have to cruise around, go to Pretoria, go to Durban, go to Cape Town, and it's like cricket and fancy dress again, and that's like my catnip. And then, you know, in South Africa, like, we don't put ourselves out there a lot, so the one rule of average, a law of average that I found out is that when you fancy dress, if you go balls to the wall, there's a very good chance you're going to win the prize. So it won the trip to England from fancy dressing, now I'm like, I'm winning this trip, I don't even care what the trip is, I'm winning it. So, dressed up as a Lego man in Pretoria, mm, fail. Dressed up as the Lego man again in Durban, mm, fail. 
And then I said to one of the journalists who was the judge, I'm like, why do I keep failing? My costume is incredible. And he was like, dude, you're not branded enough. So I was like, my good. Castle wants branding, they'll get branding. So then I went to Cape Town, rocked my spandex morph suit up to my waist, so my yellow spandex. I found this girl, her name was Sarah Tan, who was a friend of a friend, and she was a hairstylist. And I was like, Sarah Tan, you're creative because you're in hair. You're going to paint me. So she body painted me like a castle lager draft. I even had the lager, the castle lager, and at the time I was rocking the six pack, so it was like, which was impressive. And then she painted my face white, so my face was like the head on the beer, and then I had a South African flag as a cape for good measure. I mean, that's patriotism and brand. Boom, nailed it. And I won the fancy dress competition to India. So I went and watched South Africa play India in Nagpur because of fancy dress. And then, gets better, three weeks later, there was this whole campaign for Itana, there, which is now part of Hollard. And they had this whole thing where they had an annual daredevil run, where you'd rock in the red speedo and you'd run for cancer, for testicular cancer awareness. And they had a competition They said, if you can create the most noise around awareness for testicular cancer, you can win a trip to Vegas. And I was like, fancy dress, boom. And I went on this mad drive, and I combined fancy dress and PR, and I got into, like, I busted into five of them. I was like, yo, Gareth, stick me on here. Gareth and I spoke about my bills, and we spoke about chest <laughs> checking your nuts. And then I got a whole bunch of PR and publicity around testicular cancer awareness. And I won the trip to fucking Vegas, people. So then I went with a group of mates, and we were, boom, speedos in Vegas. So 2010 was the most incredible year of high highs, low lows, and I created this like cult around my personal brand about how I could just win anything. Like that was my, my thing. And then I started attracting brands that were a little bit off the wall and edgy and people who wanted to work with me. So Nando's was the first crowd that we pitched some work to. Um, also through network, a friend of mine was a lead strategist at Black River, the agency. She was dating the, the marketing manager. He's sure and fit. If all these digital dicks are coming to me and trying to put you digital ideas, fuck, what, do you, what can you offer us? So then um, I said, well, listen, we'll help you seed some stuff online. We'll create talkability around your brand. And then, you know, we'll take it from there. He's like, well, fuck, go do it on risk because I don't want there to ever be a nepotism thing. So it just shows what you can do. And then, yeah, I mean, we made stuff go crazy, trended online, went nuts. People were all talking about Nando's over the weekend. And then went back on the Monday and started signing some NDAs to work with them. We were the first digital agency um, that did like, digital PR and social media amplification for them. We put them on YouTube. We were the agency that made their posters be shared online as opposed to them paying 250k for a full page in Sunday Times, Sowetan or City Press. And we stimulated their whole culture of putting their thoughts into the public domain using online influencers. And that's kind of where we started. So like, there's been all these like small, small wins and small gains in order to get to that stage where in 2011, we worked with them to seed the Robert Mugabe, Nando's Last Dictator campaign, which got a million views in five days. And like, that for me was almost that, that proof point of like, this thing that we started, it properly has legs and it has the ability to work because we've done it and we've done it for like folding our sleeves up and just kicking serious ass and making mates with bloggers and whoring myself out there and just being like doing the stuff myself, you know, without paying people to do stuff, but actually physically experimenting with everything myself. And, and here we are, like seven years later, 
my business is small. We're a boutique social media agency. There's nine of us, you know. But you know, I can honestly say that we are the one agency in Africa that's made more brands go viral than anybody else. Because every year we've like changed the game in terms of something. Thank you for the round of applause. Amen, brothers and sisters. Um, and and that's that's what we've been been famous for. Like. The retroviral story was around the fact that so many digital agencies were launching, um, people in digital were using jargon and big words and ego to convince clients that they were right because SEO and algorithm and da -da -da -da, all these other terms. And I came out and I was like, I'm not going to baffle you with bullshit, I'm going to tell you what you need and what you don't need. And because I had the right mix of like the retro theory of comms, because I studied marketing, I know what needs to underpin um, a content strategy and I know what needs to underpin a marketing strategy, but I also understand the jargon and the tech. So I could stand up in any room and I could defend a client or I could call bullshit on an, on an industry that was very wild west. And in the beginning, like people either liked me or hated me, they still, they either love me or they hate me. Um, rub people up the wrong way or I don't. Um, but always sticking to my guns and always telling clients you're going to come first and I'm not going to fuck you and and that's the one thing that kind of separated us and, and still sets us apart like even today like I mean I've got 16,000 followers on Twitter and if I see something in marketing and tell people they're full of shit like someone will try and like argue that but I'll back myself if I believe in what I say and and that's kind of the reason what got to writing a book got way too much fucking airtime and, and words sorry I won't say any more fucks um, yeah I've been told that it makes me seem uncouth when I swear, and I should rather use my strong vocabulary to prove my intelligence. I don't need to use the F word to get my point across, because I have a thousand other words to use. A rand in the jar for charity every time you say I might as well give you a grand. Um, so, you know, that's the thing. And then um, I talk at a lot of conferences. Tracy McDonald, um, she was at Penguin and started her own business five years ago. So she came to me and she said, hi dude, I've, I've seen you talk, I'd like you to write a book. Can you write? I mean, you can speak, but can you write? Said, of course I can speak, I'm amazing. <laughs> That's the back of mentality. Uh, but fortunately, humbly, I, I'm a decent writer, I'm okay. So I said, to her, I'd love to write a book, what am I gonna write about? And she said, I want you to write a business strategy book. And I said, that sounds like fucking boring. <laughs> Quotes unquote. That's what I said to her. That's terrible. Like, how boring. Like, imagine like, 35 and you come here and listen, hey, we're going to talk about business strategy. I mean, we have like three people. You know, you know crickets. And you'd still come. You'd say, like, I'm definitely be there. No, you wouldn't be there. Um, so then last December, I went on holiday and I wrote a whole bunch of chapters that I wanted to write. Like, just the headings of the chapters. And I'm like, cool, this is the, how I'm going to structure this. And um, it all comes back to stand up comedy. Like, stand up comedy is all around coming up with a premise and a truth. Because then an audience can associate with that. Regardless of if the audience buys into it, a lot of you nodding, yes, you buy into the truth. And once you've got the truth, then you work on the act out, and then you get the funny. Because some of you will always love me, some of you will always hate me standing up as a stranger in front of you. But if I can tell you, you know what's weird about rap, is that every rapper has like a deep husky rapper voice. So, uh, 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 where would I be without you? I only think about you. I know you're tired of being lonely. So baby girl, put it on there. Oh, oh. The only time I ever had that voice is when I had the flu. So it's like, oh, oh, oh. That dripping in my throat is post-nasal. What? What? Bitch, make me soup and sprinkle some basil. <laughs> so, whether, so whether you like rap or not, 
you can all identify with that. Those bloody rappers have a deep husky rapper voice. That's what my dad would say. Um, and if you love rap, yeah, I love, oh, they're so manly with their deep husky rapper voices. But ultimately, when, you, when you're writing comedy or you're writing marketing strat, everything has a premise about a target market that they can identify with. And the truth is the most important thing. And us as advertisers and marketers, we do have a problem with our industry that has been so siloed and so dominated by a small group of people. Whereas now, like, the real advertising is all around authenticity and about a truthful voice. And if we can come up with an insight and a truth that uh, your target market can identify with, that goes a long way in convincing people to buy your product or emotionally connect to the brand. And, um, yeah, that's effectively where we are now with the book. I mean, I, I sat down, I had a baby in April, she was born and I hadn't really, I was missing all my deadlines. The, the publisher was like, dude, you've got to do 20,000 words, then 30,000, then 40,000, and actually, I think she had 80,000 in her head. I was like, definitely not going to be 80,000 words, let's, get, let's be real. But I sat down, and in April, when, she was, when the baby was born, I would start writing between like 12 and 2 at night, between some of her feeds, and I'd just write down some things. And then I would go to work, and some of my last meetings, I'd set them to end at three, and then I'd have them at a coffee shop, and then I'd write between three and five. And some days was the worst experience of my existence. I wanted to blow my brains out, I wanted to throw my MacBook into the parking lot, so I'm going to drive it over so I wouldn't have to write this bloody thing anymore. And I went through all these like different experiences and emotions, but then like, I'm writing a book, I'm writing about general themes, but there's anecdotes about my personal stuff. Who cares about my personal bullshit? This is so narcissistic. What an asshole. People are going to hate you. So like, I mean, I don't know if any of you have trying to write a book, I mean, there's definitely one author at the back there. But it is like, it's a horrible experience. So terrible. I wouldn't recommend it. It's so, so terrible. And like, there's even the days when you're like, ooh, I'm back in such a rhythm, woo. And then you've got these days of like, writer's block, I want to kill myself. Um, and then eventually, I hit my final deadline, which is the most important. So I said to Tracy, I'm not doing these 20,000, 30,000 words. This is like fairy tale land. I'm gonna just go guns blazing and procrastinate till the last possible minute, and then I'm just gonna write. And uh, yeah, I mean, people say that MBA is a divorce course. Writing a book, that's a real divorce course for you, let me tell you. Um, but I survived it. And here's my 65,000 odd bullshitty words of the struggles and the, the trials and the tribulations of being an entrepreneur. Um, and there are, there's chapters around cash flow, because 82% of businesses fail because of cash flow. You know, so it's a mixture of facts and research and stuff that I've looked at from the States because there's not a lot of entrepreneurship stats that I was really diving into from South Africa. Um, I talk about things like these degrees in entrepreneurship. You, know, you can't study to be an entrepreneur. It's like in your guts, you know? Hiring your first employee, um, selling part of your business because I've, I've sold shares in my business before. So it like really goes on this journey of networking, that's another one. In South Africa, we've got such a small network of people. Like, we're all only like one or two degrees of separation. There's a chapter called Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, because um, in, in Hollywood, there's the saying that everyone in Hollywood is connected by six degrees because of Kevin Bacon. Like, everyone's been in the movie. And then Kevin Bacon, he's apparently got a great sense of humor. He started an organization that is, like, relates to this. And uh, it, it's, it's a whole thing where, you know, this one and that one, and I lived in Hollywood for a bit, and then I ended up, you know, having chocolate chip cookies with Terry Hatcher, while Desperate Housewives was the largest show in the world, and she was in a movie in the 80s with Kevin Bacon. So I'm effectively, like, one degree of separation from Kevin Bacon. 
And then I was in New York in September before it finished writing. And then walking past Central Park, and then who comes cruising around in a little bicycle with a basket on? Kevin Bacon. So I was like, what a sign. It's amazing. And I was like, yo, Kevin Bacon. And he was like, sup? And he was like riding his little bicycle. It's a very surreal moment. Um, but yeah, effectively, there's a chapter in here for everyone who wants to start a business. Someone who's thought about jumping off their hamster wheel and starting their own thing. People who manage small teams, small business owners. Um, effectively, I want to create more jobs. I want people to start more businesses. Uh, exactly like how you have this small like dream that's an ideal that's slowly starting to gain momentum. Like I mentor a lot of people and I try and help them deal with the shit that I dealt with where I didn't have a mentor in an industry that was unknown in a very wild west kind of space. And over the years I've met smart people that I can turn to and I can ask them for suggestions around universal problems. But that's what this book is all about really. It's like you know, why do we all want to be the biggest? Why do we want to be like ego related? Like we should all want to strive to be the best and the best is very different for each of us. Like the biggest, that's one thing that is unattainable for a lot of us, but all of us can be the best in our own realms. And uh, yeah, it's been a, a really fascinating journey and it's been amazing to be here. And uh, yeah, that's, that's really the, the kind of impact of what I wanted to achieve and, and how do you, like what I wanted this, a strange piece of writing to achieve. I mean, it's like, I mean, we make videos and st tell stories for brands all the time. We write scripts every day. We always tell stories, but because you've been exposed to it so often, you end up hating your own work. It's like, it's a really weird space. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've read the whole thing through after it went to the editor and there's like these weird emotions that you go through. Like, oh, is anyone actually gonna like this? Oh, I'm, so, I'm so nervous of your response. And then it's also, it's like quite a, it's a weird, surreal feeling. It feels like an out of body thing a lot of the time. But that's, yeah, those are like my major thoughts really. And I, I don't know if there's any other questions or. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I've been lying to ask your question. <laughs> Sorry, I just came from on a table. I stole your limelight. No, 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 we're good, we're good. There's no limelight. There's questions. And we definitely want to ask a few questions from the audience. So I'm gonna before I ask a question. I'm not rush, so you guys like we don't have to we don't have to rush home. If you guys want to sit here for a few hours, we can. I mean, it's it's, it's an event shitty outside. I mean, it's raining, it's pouring, the wine is good here. So so. Oh, so uh, <laughs> ask him. He's he's got one. Oh, so if you don't like the F word, there's a lot in here. So I'll have to pick them out for you if you ask me nicely. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. I, I said well, more F words than I think on. Dude, you haven't read this book. <laughs> <laughs> There's some stuff with no, not, yeah, you got just yeah. We'll tap some out for you. Um, but the content is good, and I want to talk a bit about the content. But I'm going to ask a question first. Now I'm going to get somebody to ask a question. Who would ask? Who would like to ask Mike a very, very clever question? Not okay, who asking just any question? Yes, Young. How much has the title of your book influenced the fact that you are the self of rich older women? Okay, can we just repeat the question to the, the, the people that are actually back? We're talking about balls and rich older women. And we want to know how the two are related. Well, I've had a few requests from females asking me for the pre-order and the signed copy and the accompanying dick pic. And I'm like, that's a little bit aggressive. 
So I've had a few of those responses. Even Deborah was trying to proposition me the other night. I was on, I was on this SABC3 show, Trending SA, and then Cooley Roberts was all about, oh, you use this line, life is short, play naked, tell me about it. So I said, you know what, Cooley, um, anything in life, life, business, it's all short, like your business could be the most thriving, successful business today. Look at Kodak, it's dead the next day. And I said, you know, you always have to embrace every day as if it's your last. And it is, it's all about life is short, play naked, you know, like, so have fun while you're doing it along the journey. So um, that's effectively that line and catnip, really. <laughs> I think one of the big things, uh, yeah, is that we, we need to understand a bit more about what viral means. Mark, you still with us? Yeah, sorry, I'll just give you a drink. You don't have to worry about that. I can just, I can just give it to you. Um, so, I mean, viral. I mean, everybody, I mean, being an accountant, and I, well, I used to be one, so I'm better now. Um, but I understand, I understand the lingo. So I understand the lingo of what, what an income statement, cash flow, debtors ratio, cash flow. You know, I understand all of that. And when I speak that, I sometimes look at people and, are you not understanding my language? And I think sometimes that happens with you guys too, as you, you, you speak about the, the lingo, and we're just sitting and going, uh-huh, mm -hmm, uh-huh. So when you talk about viral, something going viral, what does that mean? It's such a stupid, intangible term. And then people are like, oh, but why have you got the word viral in your business? So then I talk to them about how strategy and like real understanding of comms and the theory behind it is the retro. And then if you package remarkable content, you see it to the right people, and it ends up having an impact on business results. That's something that, for me, viral doesn't exist if it's just around awareness. It has to have a mixture of both. So if like a car brand goes and puts out a video around the new BMW or whatever, and it only gets a thousand views, but that converts to a hundred car sales, like that for me is true viral, because it's created the talkability, it's created that bushfire amongst the most important target market, and it's led to action, it's led to something. And that's where, for me, like I will always call viral out on its definition because it doesn't have a res it doesn't have a tangible result. So it's not like one million views equals something having gone viral. But for me, the way that I define it is that you've created enough talkability that there's been a real noticeable business impact. So last dictator, meals sales were up 25% year on year. It was the most successful promotion in the history of Nando's. Uh, last year we came up with this idea for Rocker Mamas because they're our client nowadays. And we came up with this idea about election burger. So there was the Donald, the Hillbill, and the Joker in line with the US elections. And it was just simple copy, like the Donald was super cheesy, double the bull because it had two beef patties, and then it had no guacamole or anything Mexican sounding. So we, we had beautiful like food porn burger shots plus the descriptions. And there wasn't a lot of money that went into it, but it was just a, a simple yet effectively executed idea. And from there, that went globally crazy. Like it got into the front page of Reddit. And if anyone, that has 200 million monthly readers. I mean, BBC Africa was like stoked. They wanted to do a, a, an actual filming about this whole burger. And it was almost like we mystery shopped it because the presenter, Lorato, came to um, Campus Square. She found a table of students and the students were like the perfect rainbow nation. It was every race, shape, culture and size. And there was even a random token American dude. And he was sitting there, he was like, hey bro, I ain't going back to America with that asshole coming into presidency. And by them recording that story, that interview then made it onto the international feed 
of BBC. So it was seen in Australia and, and in New Zealand, it was seen in the Middle East, it was seen in the other parts of Africa. And Rocker Mamas went on this very aggressive um, increase and expansion. So at the time, I mean, it grew in three years from three stores to 50 stores. Now there's 70 stores, including the internationals. That week, they opened in Oman, they had opened in Mauritius, they opened in Kenya, they opened in Z Zim, no, no, Zim, Zambia. Um, and then people in Oman saw the news feed around the election burgers and the founder, Brian, saying, oh, the US election is a bit of a joke. And people ended up going to the Rockamamas in Oman because they'd seen the PR on BBC World. And that, for me, was the most incredible thing because, once again, I mean, they sold about 35,000 burgers for a chain of that size. It's like, size is monumental and it has a huge business impact. So for me, like, Viral has got two components. It's got an element of big and it's got an element of best. So the big is like the vanity metrics, the views, the millions, the hundreds of thousands, the coverage, the values. But then the best is actually leading to sales because that's where the, the actual impact from a virality point of view comes. And for me, in seven years, every year, we've had one big campaign, go viral globally. And, that, and that's, that for me is like, that's a huge achievement because we didn't just have a one hit wonder moment with Nando's where you could say, oh, the brand was established, it had that cheekiness that the ad agency at the time did a really good idea with the premise. Like now we are creating content like Rockamamas and like the Survivor Billboard that is getting the attention of international sites. And that's the stuff that's getting out there because people are like really excited about our ideas and about our execution. And we're a small little 10-man band down in the southern tip of Africa, constantly punching above our weight and doing work that a hundred strong agency people can't do. And they, 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 we seem to have this recipe because it's a mixture of science, strategy, and network and contact to spark that, that bushfire to make stuff be spread. But Mike, you, you're obviously doing a lot of work for the big corporates, uh, the Rockamamas, but if, if I have a small business, um, what advice do you have for me on, on how I could usually utilize uh, social media to, to PR my business and to get my story out? So the early stages of any business is all about your personal network. So that's why things like Facebook and Facebook friends, if you're telling a story where you will handful, even if you have like 20 Facebook friends, there's going to be one person within that network who knows someone who might be relevant for your offering in your business. So it's, it's all about the humble brag really. Like you have to put out there the stuff that you're doing. And entrepreneurship is a lonely place because no one wants to see you post it for cash flow, hiring my first employee, oh, it's so sad. But by putting a story out there positively, like we've done this cool work, or we've created this case study, and constantly documenting the stuff that you're doing, there's going to be someone within that immediate circle that says, hey, I want to connect you with this person. And that's effectively like how my story started. Facebook, Twitter, yes, I was an early adopter on a lot of those platforms, but then there were other early adopters that saw what we were doing and said, hey, you should meet this person. The work on Nando's attracted other champions of other industries. Wrigley, Five Gun, new brand, no budget for TV or above the line stuff, had a small digital budget, said, we want you to work on our campaign where we're going to have these Lucky Strike-esque parties where you can go to an event, hidden ticket, secret code, undercover, but you're the right agency to work with us because you understand that well, creating cult out of brand status. And, and that, that's what kind of spiraled our success, is that one champion or challenger brand in an industry noticed what we're doing in another industry, and even some um, 
bigger brands like banks who are a little bit more serious, they were like, we want to see what you can do for us. Like, we want you to come in. And yeah, we're not right for every brand. And we're very honest about that. I mean, I've had to sit in boardrooms and listen with ear earphones in and watch a video in you know, front of a whole crowd of people when they looked at me like, <laughs> like waiting to see what I wanted to say. They're like, we've made this viral video. And then I have to sit and watch it and be like, guys, mm, hate to break it to you, that's not going to go viral. Like, it doesn't have the remarkable components. And because myself and my agency, we, we watch so much content and we watch things that are coming out of different markets and we consume content. Like, you know, there's a whole chapter about eating your own dog food. Like, if you're not getting yourself dirty in your own product or service and you're not aware of your industry, how are you ever going to know what your competitive advantage or blind spots are? And for me, it's important to understand the world around you, not just in a micro, your own industry, but at a macro level of like what's going on in trends, both from your industry and the tactics that people are using within your industry to create that talkability. But always starting with your immediate network and the one-to-one -one peer support group of people that you can tap into. So I'm talking to the strategist at Black River with the boyfriend at Nando's. Like, I mean, they are now living in Washington and they're married and he's the vice president of marketing for Nando's America, you know, so like that one relationship there is now even more valuable than it's ever been. And, and we come across people in so many different ways and the challenge for an entrepreneur is putting yourself out there and saying, hi, because we are, in South Africans we're generally quite shy and we're quite reserved people and we don't like to brag and we kind of resent people that are loud and obnoxious and brash and douchebags. But it's important, like you can put yourself out there in a way that you, you don't have to come across as a dick. Exactly, a big dip. Yes, please do. You mentioned that you would put your job or what you want to offer is mentor people, correct? So the question is uh, asking asking whether he's meant whether he's mentoring people. Yes. Okay. Do I offer to mentor people through my business, through my book, or through my work, or something that I want? So for me, I give people advice all the time because it's like it's like stand-up comedy. You know, if you're holding your material to your chest all your time and not bouncing things with each other, you're going to write shit material because you're not bouncing it off real people. Even like Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld and those guys, they write comedy and they test it on each other before they go and do it. They test it at open mic. Um, but for me, there's some people that I'll just see in the business and I like. These guys that have worked and said, dude, you wait, you need to start your own business. Like, just take the leap. And um, a few weeks ago, I got a tweet from a guy who, he reminded me, like, we sat down in December last year, and I said, put in your resignation and leave on the 2nd of January. And he did, he quit his job, and now he's been running his own business for a year. And he's like, dude, that was amazing. Like, thank you for just giving me that vote of confidence that a stranger is going to say, go for it. Um, and then... There are some small businesses that I've invested in, like just taken some dividend money over the years, put some bucks in for a small amount of equity, and then I've said, listen, we complement your businesses, we can use you as a supplier, I'll help you and guide you on different things and stuff that I'm an expert or specialized at. And like, there's different scenarios, like in some instances, literally, I'll have coffee with people and say, this is what you should be doing. Like, I can see that path from a clarity perspective because I walked a similar road, or I want to invest in the business because I think it's I think it's rap. And and for me like
that's effectively what the long-term play is. Like I want to build a network of complementary businesses where I have a small stake in, where the founders and the jockeys have got their own interests and they want to continue to grow it. Um, and I'll just act as like an advisory role. And maybe one day there'll be tens of businesses, I hope you hundreds of businesses, but we all kind of share similar ethos and none of us are big dicks. Not to. Oh, were you just yawning or was that a question? No, I'd really like to know. You see the title. Why sex? I know that it's a share of sex love. I want to understand was there a pain there or what? Where does it come from? I come from that angle. Done much? Done any other aspect of the So, Nanta, you want to know why he chose sex when he could have chosen art yeah, why or. Why did he choose from the name point of view, um, for me, like I build brands for a living, like that's my thing, okay? So for me, it's not about using sex to sell, but it's using an impactful line. And the one thing that always creates love or hate at conferences is talking about there being dicks in business. Because for me, it, like, and advertising has, is notorious for being old white male dominated, that lacks transformation, has no interest in bringing young black people into the fold, and black people get abused as copywriters and things. Okay? So there wasn't, there wasn't anything race related, but it was more around the fact that I'm in an industry that is ego dominated, and I've met so many big dick pricks over the years, where like, you're not given the time of day because you're young, you're not given an opportunity. So for me, like, I've had to fight my way through a very patriarchal kind of structure where new people are frowned upon, and also old boys club where things kind of get closed ranks quite quickly. So for me, like, I've rubbed people up the wrong way. But by sticking to my guns and saying, there are a lot of dicks in digital, that's where it kind of started out with. It was all around the digital industry, and the digital industry in particular, if you look at the biggest agencies that have been created over the last 10 years, all white dudes, and all like kind of in their 30s to 40s now. And for me, like it wasn't about being the biggest, because so many of the acquisitions that took place with WPP and Publicis, the agencies were 35, 40 people minimum, and you had like 80% retained earnings. And for me, we were completely the opposite. We've always been small. We've always been between five and 10 people. And I feel like we kick some serious ass and punch above our weight. And I don't ever want to be the biggest. I want to be the best. And that's where this whole thing about a lot of dicks in digital, don't be the biggest, be the best. And then I thought if I'm writing a general entrepreneurship book, it's not just about digital, it's about business in general. So in business, there are a lot of big dicks. And yeah, for me, like, I think I'm lucky because I'm tall and I don't have weird issues about being short or whatever. So I just like go out there and do my thing, you know. But there's way too much ego in world in in, in general, in business, in day to day. And and then for me, um, the writing thing, I just like I, I have these kind of personal projects that I get I get obsessed over. Like my obsession is storytelling. Like, there's one chapter in there that talks about obsession. And um, if you think about the best entrepreneurs in the world, Elon Musk, 
obsessed. He's obsessed over making change. I mean, he wants to set up a colony on Mars. But all of them, Jobs, absolute douchebag. You read Steve Jobs' biography? Oh my god, what an asshole. Like, also, big dick, massive. Didn't want to even know his own kid. All of these people that we jerk off over and like we idolize as entrepreneurs, they are such dicks. You know? And people like PR spins these stories about they're evangelists and they're going to change the world and they're like tech geniuses, but they're such dicks. Because it's a universal saying. If you're a big dick, I mean, no one will call a girl a big vagina. They're still going to call you a big dick. And I've had a few. T- like, oh, that chick is such a bitch. She's such a dick. You know, people people ultimately equate to the whole like Freudian thing because men and their penises. And, like that's the whole thing about power and potency and omnipotence. So yeah, the penis is the is the. Why do you think Jacob Zuma and the spear? The penis of the nation. Yeah, I remember that song. Yeah? Yeah. Dianford wrote a song about it. Right? Trondos and all these weird things. But you know what I mean? Like, it's phallic. So the phallus is always going to be like this representation of manliness and success. Yes, man in the front row with green, having a lovely time with a wine. Take us to the moment where you knew that the title was the right title. Um, <laughs> I can't actually remember, a lot of this is like a blur actually. Um, for me, I've always kind of, since I was 18 years old, I had a bumper sticker on my 1300 Ford Escort that was my grandmother's, that had shaggy seats and it was like a tank and drove it to university. And I had a bumper sticker of Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin, running through the streets naked. And the bumper sticker said, life is short, play naked. Wasn't my grandmother's mother's bumper sticker. She had this bumper sticker in the front of her car that said, get even, live long enough to be a burden to your kids. This was, this was Ethel Charmin. So that's also another reason why I'm a little bit cooked. Is my grand lived with us for a lot while I was growing up. And Ethel had, she, she had stories for days. But anyway, so I had this bumper sticker, life is short, play naked. And then there was a stage in my life when I would get naked at parties long story sidebar but the whole thing is like really like embracing like this whole life moment and I've always had this thing like I want to write a book life is short play naked like there's even a little sub mention of that on the on the back of the cover but for me it was like this wasn't the story wasn't around life is short play naked I mean that's just like one component of it for me the story was the fact that in business as a startup it's difficult to enter an industry and you're trying to disrupt something when there is this existing infrastructure because there's always going to be big people around there stopping you i mean i had my fair share of people like i pissed off a lot of people when i started this business because i was saying things that they didn't want clients to hear they didn't want clients to hear oh you're being ripped off they didn't want clients to say that you're being cheated by people using jargon and you know that was the thing like i was brash I was so arrogant, I watched Mark Shovelworth go to the Soyuz mission and he lived in Star City in Russia and he rolled around there through, with flip-flops and I was like, I'm going to do business in flip-flops and t-shirts and if, if people don't like that, they can deal with this. But you know what, like, Shovelworth deserved it, I mean, he made billions of rands and he's going to fly to space 
I mean, he can roll around in Star City speaking Russian, wearing flip-flops. And I think there's like a level of respect you have to earn from your work being good quality. Like you can't just run on your mouth alone. You actually have to go and walk the talk at times. And, and there's like a huge, huge amount of lessons that came off the back of that. So for me, it is like the essence of it is around big decks. And the essence of it is that you're gonna come up against challenges and tradition in anything that you, that you find. Like if you look at what's happening with Uber, if you look at what happened, happened with Facebook versus MySpace, like there's always gonna be a power play, like the Zuckerberg story versus the rich Winklevosses. You know, like there's always gonna be like this old money, new money struggle, this young buck versus the existing infrastructure. So for me, like when, when I thought back to like a thing, an idea that, that kind of put this all together, um, it's the one consistent message that I've delivered at conferences since I started talking at them since 2011. Like the first year of business, I was always making an effort to speak at conferences because it's such a personal way to engage with people and for people in the audience to remember you and then for them to follow you because they felt like your persona and your presence was powerful. I want to hear what this douchebag says online, so I'm going to follow them. You know, because like, generally, in, in all forms of social media, the people that are the loudest online are actually quite boring in real life. They're actually so average. And like the people that I've met over the years that were big followings on social, they were bloggers, they were brash, they were so wallflowery in real life. And people are always surprised that how I speak on, online, how I write in the book, how I speak in person, that's exactly how I'm the same and consistent throughout. So for me, it was always like, that was the one thing that always resonates with an audience about don't be the big dick, be the best dick. And I could always count that. And I, I, I was saying about Emma Sadler the other day, we were talking at a conference together, and I was like, Emma Sadler is the best dick of social media law. You know, and, like, and people can get that. So, so that's, that's where it's like, it's, it's a universal concept that we all can associate with and understand. And I was like, that's something powerful. Like, I can see that in a bookstore. Or maybe, I don't know, I can, I can visualize that. And then I got my designer to play around with a few designs. I asked people on social media, this is before I'd even written a complete full chapter, this was in January, February, I had a design for the front of the book, and I asked people, which one do you like? And I had multiple ones, and people were like, holy fucking shitballs, why are you calling your book that? So, for me, from launching brands, and this as an unknown startup brand, as the best dick, to get people's initial reactions, I mean, I had a... I had a lady who I respect very much in marketing, she also started her own agency, and she said to me, dude, that name, that hashtag, is either complete stupidity or it's genius. Because if you search the best dick four weeks ago, there's so many dick pics on Twitter, like just a lot of dicks in people's mouths, all over the timeline. And for her to have seen that launch, on the day that we launched, there's a rapper called Empty, and he filmed himself having a wee, like on Instagram live video, and people were like, oh, Empty, weeing, and like I've have always had this like link. I mean, the day that we launched Nando's, Robert Mugabe was like, "Oh, David Cameron, you like those homosexual gays? I'm Robert Gabriel, and I am the boss of the world." And by him making that comment, that also spurred conversation in the UK around the last dictator. This day, launching the book, empty forming his penis. A few hours later, we had a launch event with like 350, 400 people attended, and everyone was tweeting and tweeting, and then it became the third most trending topic in South Africa, across the country, with all the people tweeting on launch nights, and then Black Twitter jumped all over that. And there's only one person that's been here putting in a note, Black Twitter just gone. Um, and Black Twitter went nuts, because they're like, ah, oh, empty, the best deck, is empty the best deck? And then people are like, ah, 
ah, it's a, it's a book. It's some white dude's written a book about the best deck. It's not empty. And then it like created this real interest amongst a group of people that like I've never even thought to actually target with the book. And then from that, that led to interviews on like trending essay because it trended. And then people were like, oh, the best deck. And then I, I'm like, I've never, my phone's never gone that mental in its life before. I mean, I've got like 150 new followers in two and a half minutes from being on trending essay. You know, I'm talking on Skype to the crowd, blah, 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 the best deck. Coolie Roberts is like, the best deck. She's like getting into it. People are like, dude, why'd you build this? And then, like, off the back of that, it's created like this new level of controversy. All the prudes in traditional broadcasting, like Kino Cummies and that's all right, and um, and Bruce Whitfield, and like they can't say the best deck on air because the BCCSA, you know. And then I'm like, come on, Kino, you don't have to say it. I'll say it once, and then we can just be done with it, and then you won't get in trouble because you're guessing it. Okay, cool. I'll try and slip it in there. No pun intended. <laughs> and along the way, like, it's just a really good icebreaker. How did you call your book the best deck? You know, and then I can tell, and then I can sound like smart about it and say, like, oh, it was actually really strategic, you know? And, and that's effectively, like, that was the one thing that, it, like, it pieces it together. And there's different moments within there, within those anecdotes that are referenced back to those different moments. Cool. Okay, Mike, thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a bit of the time. I really appreciate that. You have been here. Um, see it as the Christmas bonus special. You got it. You got it. You got it. You got the bonus bonus tracks with with tonight. But the interesting thing about the book is, and and, and why why I could recommend it is, it's all about the story at the end of the day. You know, Mike has shared with us a lot about about his story and and how he was able to to take it to the next level. Um, and, and when you look at your own business, every business has a story to tell. And you need to get your story out. Don't give your business what you think they need. Be authentic about your stuff that you have. You know, and if you and if you don't own a business, you know, be authentic about you and your own personal brand. And you know what what, what he shares about in the, in, the, in the book as well is, it's not about it going viral. Viral is something that's a result of being authentic. You don't push to be viral. It's a result of. And it's a result of stories being told authentically. So Mike, thank you so much for entertaining us tonight. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, please, a big hand of applause for Mike. And if, you, if you want to stay afterwards, um, the books are here for sale. Deborah, how does it work? People go and they pay downstairs for the books? All right, so you can you can have Mike uh, sign your book uh, here, take it on stage, you pay for it there. Then just as a final final thing, I would like to thank the most important people of the event, which is you. Thank you very much for attending. Um, Deborah, as always, you are gorgeous, you are beautiful. Thank you for hosting us. Thank you for allowing us in your beautiful space. Where is our man, Angus? Ladies and gentlemen, can we have a, a round of applause for Angus? He is back from Thailand. Angus, dude, we missed you. We seriously missed you. And uh, please, next time, can the leadership try just please sign your leave form before you go? Uh, you know, we can't just allow you to go without without not having music here. Then, what is left to say? Left to say is we've got a nice open bar here. We've got cold drinks. Uh, please stay for some networking. We're going to be all around. Uh, we'd love to chat to you about the business book club or anything else in particular, um, or about the subject of the book. Mike. Once again, thank you very much for being here.